Warning. The Kingdom Cast podcast contains spoilers about comic books, movies, and entertainment in general, as well as anything else that crosses their minds. Please do not take any medical advice seriously, nor legal advice that they may or may not give out. For that matter, it's probably for the best that you take nothing that they say seriously. Thank you for joining us once again, Kingdom Cast Podcast, for the week of October 28th, 2020. Joining us once again is Sandra Water is Wet Swindle. I'm Stan Daniel. With me, as always, is Albert Marsh. So, Albert. Yeah. We got a couple of emails here. The first email is from Jerry. And Jerry writes, okay, so I don't want to sound like a creepy old man or anything, but I know what Stan looks like. See, he's already getting creepy right out of the gate. <laughs> and I, how do you know what I look like, Jerry? <laughs> and I know what Albert looks like. Well, you know, given that Albert has an OnlyFans page, but I don't know what Sandra looks like. Okay. <laughs> it's messing up the image in my head that I have of you guys sitting around and chatting about comic books as I listen. Is there a public place where I can find a picture of Sandra? Yes, the post office. <laughs> <laughs> the post office. <laughs> <laughs> Again. Please don't take me take this as creepy. It's certainly not intended that way. I may have seen her around, but just didn't know it. <laughs> Jerry's not a very effective stalker, is he? <laughs> I'm trying to stalk a person. I'm just not sure which person I'm trying to stalk. I was trying to avoid that. <laughs> I took care of it for you, Sandra. I photoshopped your face on Noah Cyrus's <laughs> appearance at the Country Music Awards. Yeah, that's you should wear real. more cowboy hats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there we go. That's first and last time Jerry will be writing us. <laughs> so mean, Stan. I'm not mean. I mean, this is yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's not creepy at all. It's really not because Albert and I know Jerry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if this came in from somebody that uh, we didn't know, yeah, I could see how it'd be a little possibly off putting. Jerry makes Mr. Rogers look like you know, <laughs> Charles Manson. Oh, so, no. <laughs> <laughs> we're fairly secure with Jerry here. Albert, you go first on this one, and then Sandra. Then I'll copy and paste different parts of both of your answers and make it mine as well. Oh. <laughs> Mitchell wants to know how many comics we read each week. How many is because we want to, and how many is for the show? Very few are specifically for the show. Even something like Death Metal that I don't care for, I'd still read it no matter what. More than likely, Legion of Superheroes I wouldn't read after about the first few issues of that mess. As far as beyond the show, whatever new titles that we don't cover on the show that I read, I'll read over the course of the week. And usually some old trade paperbacks or story arcs, I'll read one or two of those a week as well. Sandra? Oh, I I was just waiting for Spy Island to come back up. Um, (laughs) That's later. I don't read as many comics as I used to, so I would have to say that I'm, I'm trying to think of a number. What what number I would I say I would read a week? I probably read maybe four or five a week. I would say a good portion of those are because of the show. Of course, I read everything that has Namer in it. That number can fluctuate, <laughs> and of course, those I'm reading because I want to. I go through these what I call hiatuses. Uh, there's like a backlog of stuff I need to read, as I'm sure he has heard repeatedly. No, I did not read Hawks Pox. And yes, I'm going to read it and catch up on all the X-Men. So I do read more trades during the week. I would say I try to read at least one or two trades also a week. In fact, I am actually reading Hawks Pox, Dan. You'll be happy to know. But I get my trades usually from the library because I work at the library. I pick up a weird mix of graphic novels. What is Hawks Pox? 
House of Ten, House of X. Oh, House okay. X. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I started to make the announcement that after she said it, but then she said the X-Men reboot. So I figured that explained it. Well, as for me, Mitchell, <laughs> it's a little bit of a more difficult question. I'm going to say that the majority of what I read, I read for the sake of the show. I would not be reading Bendis's Superman or Action Comics because I get frustrated when I do or anything or any of the any of the comic books that you hear me sound frustrated on. I would not be picking them up at all except for this show. I would be reading all the X-Men stuff except Excalibur and what was that other book that we didn't like? I think most of them we like except for Excalibur. Yeah, I think it's just Excalibur we don't uh, that I don't care for. So I would read all of that and the Star Wars stuff. I read all Star Wars. I read the technical manuals from DK. I read everything Star Wars that comes out, the novels, the comics, everything, and that's for me. So I know what's going on in continuity at any given time as much as possible. But I would have been intrigued enough to pick up the comic book once in future. I might have been intrigued enough to pick up the James Tynan Department of Truth from Image Comics. There's a lot that I've read on behalf of the show that I really, really enjoy that I may not have found otherwise. There's also a lot that I wouldn't be reading if it wasn't for the show. I stay away from what frustrates me, what I don't like. I'm not one of these people that goes out and and purposefully finds something I don't like and read it so I can get on the internet or tell people how miserable I am about something. If something's making me miserable, if it's on TV, I can turn it off. If I'm reading it, I can put it down. This is in regards to material that's supposed to be entertaining, such as comic books, movies, and other items. There's enough in real life that pisses me off enough that I don't need it in entertainment. As for the actual number of what we read, it varies from week to week. We try to read most of the number ones from the major distributors, you know, IDW, Boom Studios, of course, Marvel and DC, and that's on behalf of the show. So I hope that helps. What was the name of that god-awful comic we read that they were doing porn to fund science? Money oh, shot. Oh, yeah. So Money shot. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I assure you, Mitchell, I would not have picked up the comic book Money Shot. <laughs> If it hadn't have been for this show. And there's a few others, too. I'll tell you this. Iron Man, Superman. I went on a rant last week about Superman. I went on a rant last week about Iron Man, but literally had to cut out one hour of the Iron Man review where I would not shut up about how much I disliked Cantwell. I cut that out because that was just way too much. It was an entire hour of me ranting and and Sandra ranting. We both hate Cantwell. We were just trying to decide who hated him more. <laughs> I don't hate Cantwell. I thought Sandra liked Cantwell. I was about to say. I love- By the time I get done editing it for the special we're going to release, it turns out you hate him. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Sandra likes Cantwell as a person, but does not like his Iron Man. I don't like Cantwell as a person. <laughs> And so I edited all that out because it is largely just negative. Some people might find it entertaining. So there are times that I know I'm going to hate something and I'll put it on the list for us to read anyway. And that's simply so you, the listener, will get some entertainment value out of me and Albert going back and forth on something, me and Sandra going back and forth on something or something along those lines. Because I understand, I appreciate the entertainment value in that. Me personally... I meant everything I said about the Superman and Batman God situation from last week, and that does frustrate me greatly. I do try to put a little bit of a humorous spin on it. I hope that answers your question. This is Halloween week, and we've got an email from Lisa with a Y. Lisa with a Y asks us, what is the most frightening slash paranormal situation you have each personally experienced? So who wants to go first? I'll go first. Okay, good. It involves Cantwell, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I've not had any supernatural encounters. I'm sorry. (laughs) I might have had a supernatural encounter, but I was completely oblivious to it. Let's put it that way. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) (laughs) That's like I am with life. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, was that your answer? <laughs> That's my answer. I, I oh, there's okay. nothing. I mean, there, you know, there's not been a Ouija board incident. You haven't seen a shadow in the room. You no. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've not spent an hour in your home and noticed that the dogs haven't barked or made a sound and that scared the bejesus. <laughs> you know, there's lots of things that I guess are scary, but I don't think of them as supernatural. What's the scariest thing you've experienced then that you feel okay with talking about on the air when they beheaded Namor and Sequadras? Well, <laughs> to be honest. And then Hyperion carried it around for good measure. <laughs> oh, what, where is my internet through the screen slapping uh, fly swatter? <laughs> honest, most of the time I get mad as opposed to get which is not a good thing. All like right, the time so. I pulled up to my trailer and the door was open and I realized I had been burgled when I had, oh, was God. not, or my trailer had been burgled. I guess I should have called the cops or called somebody and gone into the trailer. But no, I was so bad. I got out of the, the, the truck and went into the trailer and I was hoping they were there so I could just beat the crap out of them. <laughs> the one time I thought, and I swear to God, has nothing to do with Namor. I remember when I was a kid, we were on vacation in Spain and they had these paddle boats that you could paddle out to this little peninsula island that was there. You could paddle out to this little island slash peninsula that was out there in the paddle boat. My brother and I were swimming back and forth between the paddle boats while we were out there in the middle of the, I don't want to say bay. I mean, it wasn't like deep water. It was very smooth. It was like that, but it wasn't where you could see or feel the floor of the ocean. All I could feel was this great emptiness below me that I did not know what was there. So I only swam from one paddle boat to the other once because I did not like that feeling of being above the unknown. Yeah, the abyss. And it wasn't an abyss. I mean, it was just, you know, like a bay. It was like smooth water and everything, but it was dark and you couldn't see what was underneath your feet. All you could just feel was emptiness. Well, you hoped it was emptiness. (laughs) Let's put it that way. Albert, what have you got? Werewolf racing? No, that was a dream. (laughs) The only thing I can really think of is maybe not really supernatural or paranormal, but just, I guess, feeling creepier. Uh, When I was a teenager, my grandfather on my dad's side passed away, and he was in the ICU for a few days. Well, the way the units were set up, each individual had their own rooms, but they didn't have doors. They just had curtains that they would pull open and close. We're walking by the nurse's station. A a unit had its uh, curtain pulled open, and I walked by and looked. When I looked, the guy, me and the guy in the bed made eye contact, Mm -hmm. and I'm pretty sure the moment we made eye contact with, that guy died. Yeah. Oh, Wow. Wow, you were the last person somebody saw. Probably. Wow. Okay. But, but, but I look. But we looked at each other because his head was like. I mean, the guy was completely out of it. He was just his head was just sort of turned facing the doorway with his eyes open. Yeah. Um, and I'm and I looked at him and we. I guess as much as he could look at someone looked at me and I looked at him and I'm pretty sure that was the end of that guy right there. Damn. Like you okay. had the, the the look. Oh, that's creepy. No, it was just like I only stared at him for a second, but in that second, it, it looked whatever light was there just went off. Like that was it. It was snuffed out. Hmm. Simply because this is Lisa spelling her name with a Y. If this is who I suspect it is, if it is, I, I think she expects something of me. But those experiences, the ones that she's familiar with, were not mine personally. They were somebody else. How do you put this? I am a paranormal detriment. (laughs) In other words, if you're experiencing something surreal, otherworldly, out of this world, whether it's aliens landing in your backyard and kidnapping the cat or specters or poltergeist or anything, the surest way to make it stop is to invite me over. In my experience, I found there's no paranormal circumstance that can withstand sarcasm and indifference. You're supposed to invite the ghost hunters over. Oh God! You, you see, I'd love that. <laughs> see if they can see. See if you can get them to pay you some money to, to walk through your your non haunted house. <laughs> That's exactly with all their equipment. <laughs> the scariest thing I ever experienced. There was an individual. He would pass through the state every so often. He was from outside of the state of Alabama. He would stop in our comic book shop in Kingdom Comics. And he usually did this on Mondays. 
when I was there. This individual was the manager of a comic book shop in another state. He was an interesting individual. So the scariest, closest to paranormal thing I ever had shared with me was him being in the store, talking to me for an hour, and then telling me what an awful weekend he had because he had to go perform an exorcism on one of his customers and her son. The reason that I consider that the scariest thing concerning the paranormal I've ever experienced, him telling me that, is because in my mind, what that translated into, that's great. We've got one mentally ill individual exacerbating a situation with another mentally ill individual that does not need to be exacerbated. So that's pretty much how I feel about the paranormal. And I apologize if that's disappointing. But I have other whacked out beliefs that I'm sure are way worse than paranormal beliefs that the rest of you can mock and tease me for. (laughs) (laughs) For instance, I believe that James Tynan is on to something in the Department of Truth comic by saying that the belief level affects reality. (laughs) Well, I mean, he knows. He knows Tom King. You know, Tom King may have told him something. I think this is Tynan's personal op against Tom King. <laughs> That's what it is. We're, wait, we're waging soft wars in our comics now. <laughs> All right, Tom King, you wanted to believe that Batman and Catwoman acted like that, and I'm going to take over the writing duties on Batman, and I'm going to believe real hard that that didn't happen. <laughs> So there we go. Those are the three emails for this week, and we're going to move on. There's a few others. We've answered them in return email and all. Let's see. What else have we got coming up here? Hollywood Reporter and two other sources have confirmed that that Oscar Isaac is Moon Knight in the Disney Plus series. Oscar Isaac, of course, played Poe Dameron in the Star Wars sequels and also Apocalypse in that awful, awful X-Men Apocalypse movie. But he's a great actor. He's really quite good. I think it was Ex Machina. If you have not seen the movie Ex Machina, you need to see that movie. It has him and Dumhall Gleason in it. I think I got that first name right. From Harry Potter and also Star Wars. In my view on Oscar Isaac, if he was an actor back in the 70s or 80s, he wouldn't do movies like this and TV shows. He wouldn't he wouldn't have to do this stuff. He'd have real movies and roles to do. <laughs> well, he has done several real movies. I mean, he's been in a lot of stuff and he's done he's got a very substantial body of work out there. How do you know that Moon Knight's not going to be the most excellent, the best television series ever? The best television series ever? Yeah, it could be. I doubt it. I kind of doubt it, too, but that more has more to do with Jason Aaron than it does. <laughs> I still, I, I still really, I, this is how I think. I think Twilight Zone is the best TV show ever made. I'm inclined to agree with you there. Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. I'm inclined to agree with you there. I could definitely make that argument. You know, Twilight Zone actually has one of the best Christmas episodes ever. Yes, it does. I mean, they've got several things that was just way before its time. I mean, they've got a couple of goofy one-offs, too, but the original Twilight Zone was just extraordinary. That it was. All right. So his name is basically Donald. It's not Donald. Donald. I was saying Donald. It's like tonal, but with a D instead of a T. He's the ginger. He's he's General Hux in the Star Wars sequels. He's one of the Weasley brothers. He's also the son of the actor that plays Mad-Eye Moody in the Harry Potter stuff, too. He's a good actor as well. But I think Oscar Isaac is the better actor. Nothing against either of them. I like them both. No, no. Oscar Isaac's a great actor. Yeah. If he existed go. back in the day, he'd be starring in movies with James Caan, back when James Caan was worth something. James Caan, you mean before he killed the hooker? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I don't... I'm not see, not, Stan, you get people's names so bad, I can't even get names I, right. Yeah. Back to the Oscar Isaac as Moon Knight. Do you think that's a good casting? I mean, I... Regardless of how good of an actor he is, I don't know. I just yeah, I, I think that's a good. I think that's I good. Think that's, I think that'll work real as long as he's got good something to work with. He, it ought to be good. He does unhinged real well, and I say that basing uh, that on his performance uh, from the movie Ex Machina, and also his performance in the movie Driver. Driver was a uh, tedious movie to watch too. Tedious. 
It, it was it was emotionally draining. It that really movie was. is fantastic. I'm not saying Listen, it was if you want to watch some tedious movies, the guy that directed that movie, go watch some of his other movies. I'm not calling it a bad movie. I'm just saying it, it took a lot out of you to watch it to get yeah. through it. I want to talk about tedious movies. How about that tedious movie that Stan made us watch? That we never talked about. Oh, Time the man travel. from Earth. That was yeah, the man the from Earth. That was the it. Twilight. It's a glorified Twilight Zone episode that runs an hour too long. That's horrible. It was a really, really good movie. You're uh-huh. welcome. <laughs> tedious, tedious. I saw Stan in this shack. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Watch some guy go, what if I was Jesus? That's how you can tell real actors. All you need is a one-room setting, and they can captivate you for two hours just by having a conversation. That's how you tell the real actors from the fake actors. Once again, Stan, I don't think the word captivate means what you think it means, because I was falling asleep. (laughs) That was a great, great movie. While we're talking about things that <laughs> things that I don't care for, it turns out you were right. Kate Mulgrew is out there, and she's talking like they've already made the new Janeway, Captain Janeway Star Trek series. What is wrong with the people in charge of Star Trek? And they look over this vast array of resources they have, and they say, you know what? Who is the one most universally hated captain? Can we bring them back and make another TV series out of that? Also, who's the cast member that, that's hated more than Shatner by the other cast members? Yes. <laughs> You're correct on that. I At mean, least Shatner was a meal ticket, you know? Yeah. She made Shatner look humble and quiet by comparison. <laughs> I am just my O'Brien series. Why can you not just go get Cisco? I mean, Cisco deserves a better ending than he got in DS9. He's tired. Also, Cisco has a fan base. (laughs) From the moment she first came on, Chicotay, come here, Chicotay. She's the worst. That's why that's why they had to bring on Seven of Nine. <laughs> yeah, and you know the story about her in Seven of Nine. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, I know all that mess. She made life miserable for Jerry Ryan. They need to focus on the real women here, Chicote. Tell them. <laughs> <laughs> God. In other news, MGM offered up James Bond, No Time to Die, for streaming rights, and they asked for $600 million. <laughs> Netflix and Apple kind of said, no thank you. That does but, seem like way too much. Well, I'm wondering, yeah, I'm wondering how that would work or how they think any money would be made by the streaming services off of that. New subscribership, perhaps? I'm not sure. I don't, but, I don't know. Uh, Apple is rumored to be considering it for $400 million. Like, I can understand smaller movies of because, I mean, Netflix has always done that. It always seemed like they may have got, you know, some studio or production company made a movie and realized, like, well, we probably ain't going to make, make any money back if we do it in theater. So they just sort of, like, Netflix would probably pick up a, a cheap movie for probably slightly more than what it was made for. So everyone wins out on that. As far as something like James Bond goes, that's, uh, I don't know about that. Well, Bill and Ted went directly to streaming. Yeah. Bill and Ted bypassed everything, went directly to screaming. I'm not also, sure. I'd accepted. imagine Bill and Ted was, was not an expensive movie. Probably not too terribly expensive. And then you got Borat, which it probably cost like five bucks to make. Whatever the cost of a GoPro was, <laughs> $500 or so. And it went directly to Amazon streaming. Yeah, yeah, those are cheap, easy movies to get away with. They've already spent money on No Time to Die. It's filmed, it's cut, it's done, it's in the can. I guess MGM really believes it's worth $600 million. Well, the thing That's is, gotta, like, you don't want to reduce Hurt the Brand by giving it too low, you know? Yeah. That's what they're concerned with. They're concerned with hurting the James Bond brand. I think what they fear is that if they do this, that James Bond becomes something similar to a Disney Plus streaming series, and they don't want that. Because that would be the next question. Since we're switching Bonds anyway after this film, why don't we just do an ongoing, uh, cut a deal with Netflix or somebody and have an ongoing streaming program one hour a week or what have you for 10 episodes? 
Well, the estate, I mean, does the estate have pretty strong say so and everything or whoever owns the rights? They, they, I don't think, I, I don't think, uh, who has the rights to James Bond? Sony? No, no, no. Uh, MGM. MGM. I think a lot of that, there's a fairly strong stranglehold from the people that own it as far as can be done with James Bond and whatnot. This is going to be Daniel Craig's last Bond? Yeah, that's my understanding. Okay. Yeah, that he's finished with Bond. Of course, to be fair, the last two James Bonds were going to be his last James Bonds. Yeah, I th- this one seems like this may be it, though. Well, he's got a wonderful career as an anonymous stormtrooper in the ongoing Star Wars saga that he can always fall back on. Mm-hmm. Part of me is I don't really think streaming is the way to go. I don't think that's fair to the the movie theaters. But part of me is we're just going to have to write, write off a year's worth of video TV, movie, I don't, I just, it's just a mess. We're going to have to write off more than that. Germany is about to get ready to shut down again. Mm. Yeah, this is going to be wave after wave until we find an uh, effective vaccine for it. You know what they say about the Germans? They like to march, (laughs) they like to march down to the beach every 55 years or so. (laughs) Can't trust them. Name one untrustworthy German. (laughs) Hitler? I think he was pretty straightforward with his intentions. Well, he was pretty straightforward. I'll give him that. (laughs) Sandra, you're not laughing at our German jokes. (laughs) I wonder why. (laughs) Uh... All right, let's review some comic books. Oh, is that why we're here? Yeah. (laughs) Let's feign interest in (laughs) comic books for a bit. Dark Horse Comics, X-Ray Robot number three by our new best friend, Mike Allred. (laughs) Albert, I don't think you can say that you're a fan or appreciate the genre that is comic books if you aren't reading this comic book and enjoying the hell out of it. I mean, it's a great book. Mike Allred also does a real good job of establishing, I guess, the rules of everything. Yeah transdimensional to travel and all that stuff. There's a lot there because you constantly get different versions of the characters. But it's all fairly thought out and well-managed. Like, you don't ever truly get lost in any of it. The rules are established in the story as the story moves along. Yeah. It does not slow it down, but it firmly establishes the parameters in which his extraordinary sci-fi situation is going to operate. That's what makes him a master storyteller in this genre, is he's capable of doing that. This is something that, and I'm not knocking Brian Michael Bendis. I I knock Brian Michael Bendis when we review his books, but I'm using him as an example here. What Mike Allred does in X-Ray Robot by moving the story along, progressing the characters and the character development, and not slowing the pace, has he explains the parameters that are set for this extraordinary situation, the rules that he's setting up that he himself, the writer, can't break. That's something that Bendis is not would not be capable of doing in the manner that he is. And the story really isn't padded. Like, every every scene matters to the overall story. I made a note right here that says he utilizes every page, every panel, and every line to its maximum potential. Yeah, there's no real fat in this book so far. I like the little touches he puts in there, like what's on the trash heap, the yeah. long boxes. <laughs> His Madman series spells yeah. out one of the long boxes. <laughs> yeah. Well, those and are I'll... asides. And you, yeah. you notice like the pictures, those are probably people he works with or he knows. Yeah. That, yeah. I also get this. Every time I look at this guy in his costume, I keep thinking, is he making a dick at the Infinity Gems? Look at, well, look at his, are these the Infinity Gems around his neck? <laughs> I mean, it's just... <laughs> There's it could probably very a lot be. of little things in, in this that I probably, I need to do more than can to read. But if you like Mike Aldred and, you know, I don't know why you wouldn't like Mike Aldred. This is a lot of fun. It's high-end entertainment. I think he's got a new Ecstatics book coming out, too. Well, I look forward to that, too. I loved his original Ecstatics. Man, that was a great comic. The reason we're reviewing it again is this needs to be on your radar. If you love comic books, you're going to love this. We called it the comic bookiest comic book ever when we reviewed the first two issues. Mike Allred may really be the last true master of this genre, of this medium. The book gets fives for me. I would go with all fours, I guess. I'm not as enamored as you guys are, but it was a nice, fun book. 
Well, that's why he's mine and Albert's new best friend and not necessarily yours. I guess so. Yeah, I give it straight fives as well. So go in and demand it from your local comic book shop, X-Ray Robot 1, 2, and 3 by Mike Allred. I will say that he does draw a very pretty namer, so that's definitely a plus in my book. I would love to see him on a Namor run. In fact, I would love to see him in charge of Namor. I don't know about that, but... Oh, I I do. I do. Albert, do you vote for to have Mike Allred in charge of Namor? As long as Namor's beating up some beatniks, I'm fine with it. There we go. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> IDW Comics, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Last Ronin, number one. Writers Eastman and Laird with Tom Waltz, artists Eastman and Esau and Isaac Escorza. Well, what's green and red and Frank Miller all over, Albert? (laughs) There's not enough whores in it to be Frank Miller. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) This was your pick of the week. Yes, this is a very good book. It does have a very strong Frank Miller influence, but I mean, that's by design because they're... They were originally influenced by Frank Miller. I mean, their their origin was pretty much the crap that hit Daredevil, went down in the sewer and landed on some turtles and a rat. The art does have a little bit of a Frank Miller flair to it. I mean, Frank Miller style, you can only copy it so much because I don't think there's not... There's no real Frank Miller clones out there for assorted reasons. The art does the story well. It's a good story. It's very well written. The story is that in the far future, Shredder's grandson runs the city, and we're down to one Ninja Turtle because the other three are dead. So, but the, the book, I, I sort of wish the book never would have told us who the turtle left was. It was just a turtle. I started That's, to ask if you were surprised by that. Not really. It was either he, if I would have picked two turtles, it would have been. I don't want to say who the turtle is, but yeah, yeah he was one of the, he was one of the two. I thought it'd be a neater concept if you never knew who that turtle was. Well, I could see it working that way, but this yeah. is just issue one. I think you've got four or five issues of this story. I forget which. It's solid. It's not that they're imitating Frank Miller at all, but Eastman grew up worshiping Frank Miller, and his art has always been heavily influenced by Frank Miller's artwork. Naturally, this is going to have that to it. It honors Frank Miller. Yeah. Not only do you have this unbelievably impressive body of work under your name, you've influenced these two creators who went forth and created iconic superhero characters that are worshipped the world over and has its own fan base and has been uber successful. Yeah, I enjoyed the whole thing. I thought it was a lot of fun. It's all going to depend on how the rest of the series goes for me, but I gave it straight fours. I very much enjoyed it. That's Yeah, same score. I gave it straight fours. I mean, based on the fact the IDW main Ninja Turtle book has been a pretty solid book the whole run, I don't see how this could not be the same. If you've ever been a Turtle fan, it's worth your money. Moving on to Image Comics, Chew, issue number four came out this week. Writer John Lehman and art by Dan Boltwood. This is a sequel to Lehman's acclaimed Chew series. His original series was, uh, the name of it was spelled C-H-E-W. This series is spelled C-H-U because it's the name of the main character from the first series. It's the name of his sister. This is very surreal and stylized, more so than the original series was, I felt. It's a solid read if you like supernatural crime, heavy on the gore. It's not really for the weak of stomach. Both of these series are begging for some form of a streaming adaptation to it. Boltwood's art is heavily influenced and a credit to the style of the master caricaturist Al Hirschfeld. If you don't know who Al Hirschfeld is, Google him. A quick description is Al Hirschfeld. Sandra, would you say he's the world's most popular caricaturist? He's a one-line caricaturist, and you've seen his work even if you don't think you've ever seen his work before. Uh, I know who you're not, talking about, man. Yeah, if not. Yeah, Brown one Derby. Of, yeah, yeah, one of, yeah. He's a master of one-line art. He's a master caricaturist. And I'm telling you, Boltwood has studied the form and in his own right is really adept 
at using that stylization. Overall, Chew is a gruesome joy to read. This is one of these books. I read the first edition. And I was like, look, I was not a big fan of the original Chew. I read this and I think between the artwork and the characterization of the new characters that Layman has brought into this, I like it actually a little more than I like the original. Not many people are going to say that, oh, it's better than the original. They're going to like it but not go so far as to say it's better than the original Chew, but I'm going to say I like it more than the original Chew. Uh, I don't know about the first few issues were a little iffy. This what issue four? Yes. This issue, it, it finally clicked with me. It finally got going rather than just sort of dragging as far as I was concerned. Very good art. I mean, it's a solid book all around. I guess I'd give the writing a four and the art and dynamic a three. Like I said, this is the first issue that sort of clicked with me. So as the story goes on, it'll it'll probably get better as far as me personally. Your, your overall score was a 3.3. I gave the writing a four. I gave the art a five. And I gave the dynamic a four. Because you got to admit, even though it's a sequel to his original work, he's the one that created the original work. He's got a very original idea at least not something we've seen yeah. like this in comics before. So I gave the dynamic of four, the writing of four, and the art of five. My score was 4.3. Dead Body Road, Bad Blood, number five. Writer Justin Jordan, artist Benjamin Tizma. Technically, it's not a bad book. Technically. Technically. Well, it's, a, it's a very played out book, though. How is it played out? I mean, it's just a book a book where like every character is some badass and they don't care. You know, it's, I don't know. It's just sort of. Sometimes it scares me how in sync we are because, again, we don't get together and compare notes no. on this beforehand. Uh, but I do use the term badass in my notes here. This is coming from my personal opinion. My personal opinion plays a lot into this. That's why I wanted to start off by saying technically Dead Body Road, Bad Blood is not a bad comic. Me personally, I'm so tired of backwater, white trash heroics that simply have less bases and reality than does Tony Stark and his armor. It's gotten to the point where when I see a comic that starts with a badass woman behind the bar of a sleazy joint, I automatically tune out. I already know the story. Yeah, it may use the color blue, whereas the last one used the color red. But all the lines, all the beats are going to be the same. And I think... This comes from a place within me that when you live in the middle of the South, where the majority of these stories seem to invariably take place, and you see the reality of these quote-unquote badass women and men at the bars interacting with the local drug and crime families and compromised law enforcement and the actual real outcomes of it all. When you watch families get torn down and spiral into misery from these lifestyles and from the misery that these lifestyles actually cause and the irreparable toll it takes on so many people who deserve so much better, then maybe you don't want to see it glamorized and portrayed as remotely honorable, let alone heroic. Maybe you want better characters to invest emotionally in, and at least I do. While Tizma's art is technically proficient, I just hate the way he draws the eyes. And like I said, technically, it's not a bad book. I just didn't care for it. In comic books like this, every character is responsible for the death of at least 20 people. Everyone's some mean, horrible person. It's just the main characters is slightly less horrible than the rest of them. It doesn't really amount to anything. I just didn't care for it. I gave the writing a three. I gave the art a two, and I gave the dynamic a one. My score for it was two. We'll average out the same. I gave it straight twos. Yeah, I do think the writing, you can't, it's not a four, it's not a five, but the writing was solid. So was the dialogue. He got the desired effect. It's just that I don't desire the effect. Hey, that was pretty clever. <laughs> you'll have to write that in your book. And you yeah. Get later. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You and Sandra feel free to chime in and agree. <laughs> I just came up with that one on the fly. A Man Among Ye, number three, writer Stephanie Phillips and art by Craig Cermak. Uh, well, the most remarkable thing about the female pirates in this comic is their skin care routine. They're out in the sun in the open sea, constant sword fights, and not one blemish or bump. <laughs> Joe Kubert ain't drawing this book, you know, like everyone's, <laughs> you get what you can take sometimes on these books. Sandra, did you read this one? Oh, hell no. <laughs> It's fine. It's just here's a pirate comic. It's not great or awful. It's just it's just an okay book. If you want to read a pirate comic, that's sort of what you got. So 
Well, there you go. Okay. And we said it the same, but we said the same thing about the first issue to it too. It's fine. It's just a pirate comic. They're pulling names from history and they're taking creative license with those names and they're more than welcome to. Knock yourself out. This is a comic book about female pirates. The dialogue is witty. It's not top tier witty, but you know, like the lines I come up with during the reviews. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's more like the Connors sitcom witty and nothing too harshly funny. I do find the art very bland. I don't look for faults in this art. It's just that the art is kind of boring to me. The artist draws a boat and that's yeah. what it is. It is. Now, it's boat. not bad art, but it's yeah. not very dynamic. You it's know? not engaged. I really do believe that this is probably perfect for girls ages 13 to 16. Uh, maybe even great for a really edgy 12 year old girl who wants a parrot. If I'm going to be blunt. Do y'all mind if I'm blunt? Sure. Is it going to take two hours? <laughs> Shut up, Sandra. <laughs> <laughs> You're just as guilty as that as he is. <laughs> I'm going to, to work the next day. <laughs> <laughs> If I'm going to be blunt about this pirate book, unless it involves Johnny Depp, Margot Robbie, or ends in me walking through a gift shop at the end of it where I can buy a stuffed Goofy that's dressed in pirate gear, Mm, mm, I just don't give a (laughs) yo-ho. See, now that, that is witty dialogue. (laughs) You can can delete that. (laughs) You can just... I gave the writing... You can take take that off the wall. I gave the writing a three, the art a two, the dynamic a three. My score was 2.7 on the man among you number three. Probably just straight threes. Now, Department of Truth, number two. Writer James Tynan, the fourth, T4, the tiny onion himself. Artist Martin Simmons. It didn't go exactly where I thought it was going, but that's okay. I'm still hooked enough that I want to see what's going to happen. Where did you think it was going? I didn't think it was immediately going into his child abuse past. The blurb kind of set that up. You see, that's the real question, though. Was he abused? Was he not abused? Are they trying to instigate the belief that he was abused because retroactively he becomes abused? And it's a, yeah, it also helps try to establish how that stuff works in the book. Is it on a more of a societal level or does it go down to the individual? And in this episode, it answers where it goes down to the individual. Yeah. And what level of effect? Because the woman in red is on the opposing side of this and she knows that he's been recruited. She's involved now in his vague memories of this situation, of satanic abuse in the 80s when he was growing up. And she's trying to propagate that belief in him until it becomes an effective reality. Yeah, there's a lot of, we don't know what's real. We don't know what's being made real. Well, it's like when they're discussing Oswald. Which Oswald yeah, is he? Which, like, yeah. what, 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 you know, who, who am I dealing with? <laughs> yeah. Is this the Oswald that Jack Ruby shot? Is this the Oswald that was actually at the book depository? Is this the Oswald that defected to Russia and back and was on the street corner handing out flyers in front of the CIA offices? And then the answer was something like, well, what day of the week is it? I mean, what TV show is on or whatever? There's a line in there also saying, thank God that the population of children that believe in Santa Claus is low enough. We've had to go and kill him twice before. Right. Your belief level in Santa Claus dictates whether or not he exists. Mm-hmm. You see, this is where, and this goes back to that, uh, the email we got about the paranormal situation. I ain't call this paranormal, but I do believe that reality is to some degree affected by our observations and beliefs. Mm-hmm. I know the quantum physics thing that states that, yeah, reality is affected by our observation of it to this quantum degree. But I do believe it plays a greater role in this. Let's take this for an example. And I am not downplaying any form of abuse whatsoever. What I am going to say is that it's a safe bet that there are people out in the world that truly, honest to God, believe they were abused by somebody, but in fact, they weren't. That it's a situation that may have just occurred in their head through some other circumstances that maybe even the person that they believe abused them never even actually, is just some memory that they formulated during childhood. But does that make the effects 
that they have from that belief any less valid because it has shaped their lives. I'm trying to follow the line of logic that Stan is weaving here. Um, no, no, like it's a real, it's brought up in this issue. It is a real thing when police talk to kids. There's a lot of rules and stuff set up because you're not allowed to put ideas in their head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not allowed exactly. to lead them. Yeah, because if you do, then that kid believes it. There has been circumstances in the past where psychiatrists or DAs or prosecutors or family members have encouraged kids to believe something that's not true. And the children have grown up believing it as though it were true. In fact, making the effects on them just as real as the actual effects would have been had it been true. Well, I think that's what they're going to be playing with in part here. Well, that's definitely what they're playing with. What I'm stating is that I believe our perception makes up more of our reality than anybody would care to believe or admit. Yeah. Well, yeah, because we can't judge reality any other way but through our perception. You can even argue that there's no definitive common base for reality as we think it's defined. Well, I mean, I think that's what the book is saying. I mean, that's why all these flat earthers. So in and of itself, the book could actually be having a great impact. It could be having a powerful impact on reality, given the number of people that's actually reading this comic book. It could be. So in conclusion, Sandra believes that the earth is flat. And there's a giant ice wall. Sandra does not believe that. Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, overall, what did you think about? I think it's interesting. I like the art. I hope James Tinian doesn't flinch on this and just make it some kind of, oh, I don't know. I don't think he's going to flinch. I think he's on to something here. I think Tynan has this down. I thought it was outstanding storytelling of stories that should never be told. And I think it's a wonderful vantage point for uninitiated readers who never consider the impact that their observations and belief actually do have on reality to take the opportunity to read this and and actually get them thinking in different ways. There's a number of very serious books that have been written on the nature of reality, but the light end of it where you need to start is some of Malcolm Gladwell's writing, such as Snap. If this concept interests you, Snap does not follow through on the sci-fi aspects that Department of Truth does. What Snap does is it gives you realistic ways that perception works and affects situations. This comic book is quickly becoming my favorite read. I've gotten where I'm, I really am looking forward to this each month. I gave it straight fives. Mm, I'm going to go with fours again. I'll okay. give the uh, writing a five, dynamic a five, and art a four. You're at 4.7. Sandra gave it straight fours. I gave it straight fives. And by the time the next issue comes out, I will have perceived and believed hard enough that Sandra will have also given it straight fives. Possibly. (laughs) You can always just edit the podcast to make it sound like (laughs) that's That's right. (laughs) And then then Albert will back me up saying, no, no, that was your actual score, Sandra. And yeah. You'll come to believe it, and then would it really matter that you gave it straight fours? (laughs) Stan, altering the reality to fit his perception. (laughs) Look, we've got a chance of believing Santa Claus into existence. Who doesn't want that? Dude, I'm not (laughs) wasting my believing in for Santa Claus. (laughs) Well, come on. Who wouldn't want Santa Claus? The bad boys and girls. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Marvel Comics. Y'all heard that Shang-Chi wrapped filming. They're finished filming the movie Shang-Chi, Legend of the Ten Rings. Now it's in post-production and the cast and crew, everybody seems very excited about what they've got. They are? Well, the interviews and stuff I read. I mean, that's part of their job. I haven't heard much about Eternals. Not saying that Eternals is going to be a bad movie or anything. I just haven't heard people, the cast and crew, saying a lot about this. But I read like two articles where different members of the cast and the director, of course, the director is always going to be very, well, except uh, Josh Trank. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it sounds very positive. I'm looking forward to the movie. I hate that the comic book is not living up to it. Shang-Chi, number two, written by Jean Yang and penciled by Dyke Ruin. Sandra, I, what was your take on that? I know I wasn't I, big on number one, and this did this did a little more for me, but not really enough. 
Yeah, I was the same. I thought this was better than the first one. Just marginally. Yeah. They had a couple of interesting aspects to it, but it's still just not enough to pull uh, pull me in. At least they got him out of the city. Yeah. Uh, and he's bleeding universe. So what's that all about? <laughs> I have no idea. That's at least, like I said, this one, there's more happening. There's more questions. It's just something missing. Maybe the writer might be trying to do something that I'm completely missing out on. You know what I'm saying? Something that's not readily evident to us yet. Yes. Well, I don't know that there might be a lot more cultural things in this that I'm just completely missing. You know, I was kind of looking for that in the first issue and this issue, mm-hmm. but I'm not necessarily getting that feeling. I mean, usually I can tell that there's a line of something that I don't get that I'm mm-hmm. not in on concerning a different culture, and I'm looking for it and I'm just not picking it up. Yeah, and this is not bad. This is not bad. It's just not exactly what I was looking for. Out of all the stories we could tell with Shang-Chi, I think there could have been a better start to this. Yeah, you're right. It's not bad, but it's not something that I'd be grabbing people and saying, you must buy Shang-Chi. Yeah, there seems to be a certain, and maybe it was more there in the first one. I don't know. There's a certain amount of fun slash comic book, gee, wow. You know, like you guys are talking about with uh, the Mike Aldred book, that's missing from here. I was looking for something more blockbuster-y type kind of thing. Instead, it's it's a Steven Seagal movie. Oh, gosh, it's not that bad. Instead, it's more like... I started to say it's not that entertaining. It's it's more like, like, I was looking for more of like a blockbuster movie, and then this ends up being more like a cozy, feely, touchy movie. Does that make sense? I don't think... Yeah, it, it what you're saying, it, it does make sense. I don't think it has enough entertaining forms of engagement in it, at least not for the first two issues. And I don't think it has enough depth to make up for that. Or not that depth is something that I'm just completely overlooking. Is, that's my I don't point. think you're overlooking it. I really, really don't. You would be able to spot it quicker than I am. And I'm actively looking for it. You'd catch yeah, it without I mean, looking for it. This is something that I'm kind of worried about with the movie. Yes, I know it's set in the MCU. And yes, I know you're doing like an Asian movie. But if you're going to do an Asian movie, you're, you're going to be dancing around with the fact that you're no, never going to make a Kung Fu movie as good as Hong Kong makes a Kung Fu movie. You know what I'm saying? I just think they might have picked the wrong way to go about this. But we'll see. We'll see. Well, not according to the uh, Asian actors in it. They're very very upbeat about Mm -hmm. that particular aspect of it. And and I mean, that's part of why I'm saying, hey, look, I'm looking forward to Shang-Chi now more, the movie now more than I was then. But the comic book, it's got a little bit more of a ways to go. I initially gave it a 2.7 and I decided just to give it threes. Again, I'm going to use that phrase. Technically, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm just not enjoying it. I don't necessarily think it's worth your money. Unless you're by Shang-Chi, like Sandra is the Submariner, I think you can miss this. <laughs> I'm going to give the writing a two, the art a three, and the dynamic, I guess, a two. It's not a bad book, but it's not what I was hoping for. Okay, um, so you went, yeah, you went down in grade. You gave it a, yeah, yeah you gave it a 2.3. Well, I'm going to stand by my 2.7 on it. So. Okay, and, and I, but I will say this. It was better than the first issue, in my opinion. Yes, I agree on that. There's no argument there. Yeah. And I didn't read it, so I'm not going to read it. Immortal Hulk, number 39. I know we review every issue of this book, but damn, you, you kind of got to. Mm-hmm. Written by Al Ewing and drawn by Joe Bennett. Cover art by Alex Ross. Well, the leader is quite evil in this issue. (laughs) (laughs) He's quite literally the stuff of nightmares, particularly Bruce Banner's nightmares. Yeah. We've said it before. Al Ewing has been paying homage to the horror aspects of the Hulk from back in the Stanley Jack Kirby days. He just straps on the jetpack, goes as far over the line as possible, especially with this issue. Everything Al Ewing is doing with the Hulk, it makes the older stories even better, from Stan and Jack to the Peter David run, which went a long way to defining the modern Hulk, to even just little small aspects here and there. The characters that he's brought into it, the characters that he's involved, his run actually enhances all the previous Hulk stories in some way or the other. This is an extraordinary 
comic book. In the past, I keep going back and forth between uh, Thor is my favorite Marvel superhero comic currently, beating out the Immortal Hulk, and then this issue comes out, and now, damn, nothing beats the Immortal Hulk. I don't think anything can even remotely compare or come close to Immortal Hulk from Marvel or really anybody. Yeah, I don't think there's anything out there that does this. Nope. And this is a its a unique aspect. Yes, it's a superhero book. Yes, it's a horror book. Yes, it's a psychological thriller. Yes, it's a science fiction comic. It's all of these things and more. And it's something that they will never be able to translate into any other format other than the comic book format. No, not have it make sense, at least. Not without losing yeah, the specialness to it, some of the aspects of it. I said the last issue that came out, Bruce Banner, Hulk, is not my favorite character. I like him. He's fine. But he's not my favorite character. But yet, thanks to Al Ewing, I know this character better and more personally, on a more personal level, than I do any of the other characters. Because nobody has come this close into delving into somebody's psyche other than Peter David dealing with the Incredible Hulk. This is just an extraordinary issue, an extraordinary run. Joe Bennett's art is, I'm looking for the right adjective. Cronenberg, yes. Yeah, you're right. Cronenberg, yes. It leaps off the page at you. Yeah. The eyes. When you get to those body horror moments, it's a very shocking book when we get to those points. Yes, it is. What makes it shocking is it all looks like it could work. When it's laid out, everything's there. You don't have to question where things come from or or what's going on. I guess the biology of the characters is all there on the page. It's Lovecraftian. Yeah. Uh, If you've not been following it, you're doing yourself a disservice in much the same way you're doing yourself a disservice if you're not following or picking up Mike Allred's X-Ray Robot book. This is a must-read and, needless to say, straight fives. Yeah, straight fives for me, too. I don't care for Hulk as a character, but it's it's impossible to... Ignore uh, this book. Right, yeah. I mean, I've read, like I said, I think six trades now, and it's been awesome. Good deal. So definitely pick this up. It's worth the trade paperback money. It's worth your attention. It's worth your time. It's a hell of a comic book. And to round out the Marvel comics this week, Savage Avengers, number 12. Writer Jerry Dugan, art by Patch Zercher, Albert Conan the Barbarian. On the moon. This is why the Howard estate wanted Conan associated with Marvel. All these years of lame Conan stories and his waning popularity, and then they gave him to Marvel Comics and said, please, please make him relevant again. And boom, motherfucking Sumerian in your in your lunar orbit. This is funny stuff, guys. <laughs> Marvel Comics is clearly the house of ideas. In oh, the interest God. of well, to be fair, in the e- in the interest of equal time, I'm going to point out that DC, under the rule of Pamela Lifford, has managed to give Starfire a mohawk, so they've got that going for them, which is nice. Well, Marvel How- puts out that Iron Man book. As if. <laughs> got we you there, have. didn't I? <laughs> As if that were not enough. Naked Conan uses a prostitute's... No, we As- don't know she's a prostitute. As if Conan... On the moon was not enough. Naked Conan uses a prostitute's prosthetic leg to kill a manifestation of the vile demigod Shumagorath. A prostitute's prosthetic leg, Albert, while he was naked. This is how you write the Avengers. I've had crazier nights. (laughs) Do tell. Do tell, Albert. This is how you write superhero team comics. He's this not is a why you superhero. See, that's my whole point. I, I don't I don't like any of that. I, I'll I'll eventually read this you, in trade. You but look, that just sounds you, horrible. You Conan's look at this not a superhero. Issue. You look at this issue where he takes that prostitute's uh, prosthetic leg and kills the demigod with it, and then goes back to bed with the other six prostitutes. And tell me, he's not a superhero. He's not supposed to be a superhero. He's a a well-traveled adventurer. Yeah. That's why I don't like Conan stuck in the superhero in in the MCU. They play him like a giant, complete idiot in this book. That's fine. It's just that this version of Conan shouldn't be how they write him in his main book. Did you read this comic? They weren't treating him like an idiot. Oh, he's a massive idiot. (laughs) 
<laughs> he's a barbarian. No, he's a Sumerian. He's a thief. He's not a barbarian. Yeah, it's oh, Conan I'm, the I'm, Barbarian. I'm, I'm sorry, I could have sworn the title of his comic. Conan is a thief. The barbarian. Barbarian does not necessarily mean low intelligence. I, well, I do. Well, I'm not saying it does, but he is a barbarian, and he is thrust into the 21st century. And in comparison to, say, Doctor Strange, yes, he's an idiot, but they treat him with respect. I am not a Conan fan, but I am now. <laughs> A, a prostitute's prosthetic leg, Albert. We don't know that she is a prostitute. I don't need to see Shumagorth jobbing to Conan the Barbarian on the moon. That's just just wrong. That, oh, that's, well, he that, wasn't that, on the moon. That, this was a flashback when that occurred. He was telling him something that happened. They're just meeting on the moon. Oh, my God. No, this, this sounds horrible. To be out of range of Kulangath. It doesn't sound hard. This is great. This is sheer awesomeness. This is over-the-top stuff that Jason Aaron is failing to pull off. I, I like the book. I think it's a fun book. Yeah, it's a fun book. It's entertaining. It's solid. The characters are true to themselves. The look on Black Widow's face. She went back to bed. <laughs> We're just all going to overlook the fact that he did that and went back to bed, right? <laughs> That's an awesome book, Albert. It is. It's fun book. I said it's a fun book. I gave it straight fives. I gave it straight fours. Well, you'd be wrong because Conan, the barbarian, was on the moon, man. Okay. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Conan doesn't belong in the moon. That's what I'm saying. Well, this is going to round out this week's comics. and uh, but, <laughs> but before we before we move away from the subject, are y'all familiar with the life of Robert E. Howard? No. Vaguely. It is a tragic, tragic situation. He killed himself in his very early 30s. Oh, I knew that. I knew that. Yeah, blew, blew his yeah. brain out. Uh, when he thought his mother was going to die, he went out to his car in the sanatorium and shot himself with a gun he had borrowed. He didn't even see the first novel form of Conan published. Most all of his Conan work was published in Weird Tales. The first actual novel or book he got out was a Western. I don't think he thought or maybe because of financially, he just didn't make enough money. He didn't think of himself as a success. Yeah. Plus, he had some mental issues. There's a movie made out of it with Vincent De Vincent, yeah, playing Robert E. Howard. Oh my God! Well, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to watch that. I love D'Onofrio. If I remember correctly, I think he played Howard. It's called was, The Whole Wide World. It's got Vincent D'Onofrio plays Howard. I'm familiar with Arthur Conan Doyle. I'm familiar with most aspects of his life. I mean, as much as the general public is. Uh, but Arthur Conan Doyle, he understood and knew what a success Sherlock Holmes was. Mm -hmm. He may not have appreciated the fact that, dear God, 150 years later, this character would still maintain a level of popularity and move into the realm of myth. Poor Howard, he didn't, he never had a clue. If I remember correctly, I, he was either. He either was bipolar or suffered from clinical depression or yeah, he, something, he or, something yeah. or the other. He had some mental issues. Well, I'm definitely going to have to check that out. I was just looking up a few things. I came across the Wikipedia article and I started reading. I thought, oh, my God, I, that is so horrible. He had no idea. And I mean, he probably didn't even suspect that Conan would become the icon he is. Well, the, part of the reason why Conan became the icon was when Lynn Carter and collected all his stories together and reprinted them in the 60s in the quote-unquote novels that, that we have out there. They got the Frazetta covers. Right, the Frazetta yeah. covers. It said that Conan really hit his stride. Conan the Barbarian really hit his stride of popularity in the 70s so far as the novels being re-released or collected together and, and printed. Yeah, I mean... Also, before, it was how they showed Conan. Before. There wasn't a lot of drawings of Conan. Some of them had him look sort of like a Roman soldier to some extent. And I saw some early pulp novel drawings as well. He basically looked like Tarzan. Well, he comes from that. I mean, yeah, the way it Howard was, describes him, he is more like Tarzan. He's not like this big bodybuilder, Frank... Um, Frazetta defined. Yeah, you're right. In the 70s, I guess. Early 70s. I was thinking it was earlier than that. Let's well, no, they collected the novel. You were correct. I wasn't correcting you at all. They collected the novelizations and oh, started yeah, putting the them 60s, together in the 60s. Mm -hmm. But the popularity, the ball got rolling for him in the 70s when Frazetta started doing the covers to the reprints of the novelizations. I think Frazetta did the covers all the time. From the 60s. For, well, 60s. Yeah. He, 
Yeah, he's credited as getting the ball or drawing more attention to Conan. It says 1967, so Frazetta was doing the covers. Yeah. And that's going to round up this episode of the Kingdom Casts podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please continue to send us your emails. Let us know what you're thinking. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Give us five stars if you can, if you enjoy us. That helps us a great deal. Let us hear from you either over Facebook or through email. We're Kingdom Casts, Kingdom C-A-S-T-S at gmail.com, Kingdom Comics at gmail.com, and on Facebook and on Twitter. Don't be shy. Let us hear from you in any one of those formats. We look forward to it. We're so very grateful for you. Our numbers continue to improve, and that just thrills us. I mean, it really, really does. It is a joy. One of the highlights of my day is checking the numbers on the website and seeing them. And thank you all so very much about that. And here's the opportunity to make me even happier. Run down people and force them to listen to us. It is a miserable, miserable world out there. And we're bringing joy to you. And it's not fair of you to keep us to yourselves. (laughs) It's not, is it, Albert? No, not at all. (laughs) Not at all. And the vast majority of you are going to be standing in line waiting to vote this Tuesday. What better opportunity than to say, brother, sister, can I share with you the news of Kingdom Casts? (laughs) You know, if they seemed reluctant to interact with you, just grab their iPhone from them (laughs) and go to their podcast link and subscribe. And hand it back to them. After you get out of jail, I'm sure they'll thank you for it. (laughs) Do y'all have any other suggestions on how they can share us with the masses? I think you covered it, Stan. So take the opportunity. Don't be shy. Make new friends. We're here to help you. (laughs) Thank you all so very much. We appreciate it greatly. We'll be posting the Kingdom Casts pull list to update you on next week's comic books. We'll post that on Monday night sometime after 10 p.m. Central. So look forward to that as well. Let us know if that's helping you out, what we could do to improve it, what you think of it. You're, you know, and, and same thing with this show. We love hearing from you. We basically love getting your questions. We respond to everybody in email. We answer on here. Not We don't answer everybody on air because time is of the essence on these things. But we do send emails back to you if we can't use you on there or even if we do use just just talk to us i'm bored i'm lonely okay that's what it comes down to sandra you got anything (laughs) nope i'm uh no i have nothing right now sorry (laughs) no problem albert do you have anything i'm lonely too (laughs) there you go albert is lonely (laughs) hit him up any day, night, you know, if I, you want me to give them your phone number or? <laughs> no, don't give them my phone number. <laughs> Put Albert's phone number in code later and we'll see which of you can break it. Thank you once again. We'll be back. Our regular podcast will be back with you next week, Thursday or Friday. And again, the Pull List podcast will go up sometime Monday night after 10 p.m. I'm Stan Daniel in for Sandra Swindle and Albert Marsh. Sandra, tell them good night. Good night, everybody. Albert, tell them good night. Good night, everybody. Have a safe and happy Halloween. Kingdom Casts is owned by Kingdom Comics Incorporated and produced by Stan Daniel and Albert Marsh. No part of this program may be reproduced, replicated, or replayed without permission. Special thanks to Sandra Swindle. Also, thanks to our content contributors, Jason Bean, Tim Bryant, Denise Daniel, Josh Duke, Alex Fitzpatrick, Charles Hickey, Allison Marceau, Mark Adam Miller, and Contrita Olstead. Logo designed by Geoffrey Gwynn. Edited by Stan Daniel. Kingdom Casts is copyrighted 2020. All rights reserved. Some heavy duty whacking.